following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Humanity is very deeply interested and invested in explaining the nature of consciousness. However, the problem is that science, religion, art, and philosophy do not really understand what consciousness is. And primarily this is due to the fact that they lack effective methods to really qualify, to measure, to define a quality of being, a state of perception. Everyone believes that they understand what consciousness really is. And yet, the evidence is contrary due to the conflicts between schools, religions, scientific research, inquiries, theory, schools of thought, philosophy. Many times, all of them fight against each other, contradicting each other, and even contradicting themselves. The truth is that consciousness is very defined. It is a very specific state of perceiving And yet, the reason why people don't understand it is because they ignore the experiential dimension of perception. Science likes to measure consciousness according with quantitative research, when in truth consciousness is a qualitative state. 
it is a dynamic range of experience, which can only be verified through practice, through facts, through genuine exploration, introspection of oneself. In a superficial sense, people know that when a boxer is knocked out in the ring, he loses consciousness. And when he awakes again, he has regained it. So people think that consciousness is being physically active, being in the body, being the body itself in movement, in one's daily routine. And yet this is a very superficial understanding of what consciousness is. Because having energy and vitality to go through one's day does not really capture the dynamic spectrum of possibility. There are many qualities of consciousness which are very dynamic, profound, intricate, specific, whether positive or negative, liberated or conditioned. As we've explained in previous lectures, the consciousness is the capacity to perceive, and yet that perception can be clouded, conditioned, obscured, or it can be free, pristine, sharp, lucid, attentive. There are qualities of consciousness that are very divine, beyond the states and experiences of physical life. But also there are states that are diabolic, that are negative, that are infernal, belonging to egotism, states of pride, anger, hatred, vanity, lust. So being physically awake is simply one base level of experience. It does not take into account the full range of human qualities or animalistic qualities within the psyche. So to be very specific, the consciousness is the soul, is the essence. It is the prima matter of what we are. It is the synthesis of what we are. It is the capacity to perceive. And this is what gives us the basis in which to experience thought, feeling, will. Consciousness is not limited to conditioning, to mechanical thinking, to negative feeling, to animalistic desire, instinct, will. So whether we've studied this type of knowledge for a long time, or if we are new to this. This distinction 
is very profound and must be revisited again and again, where we introspect and examine what states in us are negative, what is conditioned, what is that which makes us suffer, and what is a state of liberation, which the Buddhists call nirvana, cessation of suffering, cessation of the psychological causes of affliction. Self-observation is a psychological sense that we need to cultivate from experience. We may know intellectually that our body is sick, that we are in pain, that we are in a state of anger. But are we actually observing that state? People think they know where they're at or what they are doing. We may know we are filled with fear, with pain, with sorrow. But the question is, are we observing this fact? Are we introspecting as a consciousness into our three brains, into our intellectual brain, our emotional brain, our motor instinctive sexual brain? Are we looking in to see that we are not thought? We are separate from feeling. We are different from impulse. We have to really be honest. How often are we examining ourselves? This is the basis of self-transformation, is self-observation. When a person insults us, we tend to react in a conditioned, mechanical way. This is due to identification, habits, and mechanical, repetitive behavior. What is identification? It's when we feel, we identify, we believe that we are the I. When anger afflicts us, when someone insults and hurts our self-esteem, we immediately respond with feelings of pain, with the thoughts that he wronged me, she hurt me, and then there is the will to act, the impulse to say something negative. But if we act on the egotistical states of our interior, we perpetuate pain. So we are conditioned. We are mechanical beings. We are human machines. Impressions arrive within our senses. Our mind interprets what we hear, what we see. And then the mind reacts with thoughts, feelings, and will. If we wish to experience liberation, transformation, we have to learn to see the impressions when they arrive in the senses and how the mind, our ego, reacts. Self-transformation is only possible when we comprehend what perception is, when we are not limiting our perception to thinking. 
Observation is different from thought. Observation, consciousness exists before, during, and after the thinking process. It is what allows us to be. It is before the senses. But how many of us have experienced that? We have to be very sincere. Most of the time, we are afflicted with pride, anger, pain, fear, anxiety, conflict, contradictions, confusion. Our life is a state of misery if we never question ourselves. And so, in this lecture, we are going to examine how to do that. The techniques for understanding ourselves, our ego, or the multiplicity of egos, different selves, with their own ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. Self-observation is the way. It is the state of seeing thoughts, feelings, and will as they are. So this is a state of clarity, of seeing, of understanding. Because most of the time we just think and feel and act in response to what people say to us. We are machines. We are mechanical. Unless we observe this process in ourselves and really question the processes of the ego. How pride emerges and results in relation to the impressions of life. To observe the relationship, why did this insult bring out my anger, followed by pride or self-esteem? Are we really comprehending where these thoughts come from, how they sustain, and how they pass? So we're building off a discussion on the three brains, the machinery of the mind, the heart, and the body. The consciousness is the ability to operate and manage the three brains. So you can think of the three brains like a car, which can be driven by someone who is sober, intelligent, conscious. A car is useful in its place on the road in order to get from destination A to destination B. The same allegory applies to our spiritual life. But we know in life there are people who are irresponsible, who are alcoholics, who drive vehicles when intoxicated. This is a symbol, a direct representation of our ego. Our ego uses our three brains to cause harm. Our defects use our thinking, feeling, and acting, our ability to relate to the world in order to commit and perpetuate pain. So the essence must operate the human machine. Our soul must be present, must be awake, must be here and now if we wish to see suffering. We know that every atom is a trio of matter, 
energy, and consciousness. Atoms have a material, an energetic, and a conscious function. As above, so below. Within our microcosmic universe, within the atom, as a representation of our psychological and spiritual life. The atom is the unit of creation. It is a trio. It is a trinity. And if we're familiar with many religions, including Christianity, Buddhism as well, Hinduism, there are many trinities, representation of spiritual relationships within oneself and the universe. So every atom, every particle, has consciousness, it has energy, it has matter. All three are essential dynamics for understanding how to transform our psyche. And what we don't take into consideration, how matter, energy, and consciousness work together, our efforts to transform suffering become incipient, ineffective. They lack expediency. Every practice in our Gnostic tradition involves work with matter, energy, and perception. What's interesting, too, is that in quantum mechanics, scientists have discovered that light particles make conscious decisions. So people who have a skeptical mind who doubt how even particles and energy have intelligence should reflect on this fact. Our body, our matter, has profound storehouses of intelligence, of energy, which we are not aware of. The consciousness works with energy. It works with the body. Yet it is not limited to physical matter. So we explained previously how the three brains are the mechanism by which we experience daily life. However, contrary to popular belief, in brain research, in materialistic science, these three brains, especially the intellectual brain, the physical matter, is not the creator or the originator of perception. While matter is a vehicle for consciousness, it does not produce consciousness. Materialistic science only measures things in accordance with appearance. It refuses to deny its own skepticism, its doubt. Because people who are asleep as a soul, even when physically active, do not experience the inner realities of the psyche or the internal world, such as in dreams. When we as a consciousness are active outside of the vehicle of matter. So we explore these issues from experience. And this is the fundamental flaw of modern science, is that while propounding a neutral scientific inquiry, it often fails to enact its own principles of investigation 
because many scientists are very skeptical about conscious experience outside of the body. But of course, we have methods by which to verify these truths. And the way that we do so is by studying ourselves. And so the physical brain is not the creator of thought. It is the vehicle. It is the apparatus, the machine, that performs a single function, which is to store information. That is it. It can store concepts, theories, beliefs, thesis, antithesis, ideas, ideologies, political agendas, etc. And yet that is not a true predicator of real intelligence because the intellect has been used to commit crimes, violence, genocide, extortion. We can simply look at the Holocaust, how much intellectual brilliance was used to commit the worst crimes. Real intelligence is not the intellect. To be intelligent means to know how to relate with all phenomena, with wisdom, with consciousness, with serenity, with understanding, so that we do not create pain. The intellectual brain, with its gray matter, is found in the cerebral spinal nervous system. It is the vehicle of the mind. It allows thought to exist in the body, to transmit, in the same way that a circuit transmit forces through a positive, negative, and neutral charge. This is known within atomic science, physics, quantum mechanics. We also possess emotional intelligence developed in the emotional brain. Our sentiments, which has its own capacity for knowledge, understanding. Really, this is much more dynamic than the intellect. So with the intellect, we store memories, ideas, imaginings. But the heart is much more profound. The emotional brain. Really, humanity lives more in its emotions than anything and fights and kills because of negative emotion, hurt, pride, revenge, retaliation. So the emotional brain is much more powerful than the intellect because it processes energies within the physical matter of the heart with its nervous systems so that we can process a more profound form of intelligence, sentiment, feeling, relationships. We relate to the world through our heart with people, with feeling which can be positive, such as in states of compassion, serenity, conscious love. There are scientists who say that the heart, its nervous systems, the grand sympathetic nervous system, has a tremendous storehouse of intelligence. There are people who have been studied who can
sense. Family members from other sides of the planet who are in suffering without having any knowledge or contact with that person. They simply intuitively know that this person is in danger. And then later they find out at that time they had that premonition that person was in danger, was in suffering. Lastly, we have a more powerful brain, which can be the vehicle of transformation. It is the motor instinctive sexual brain where we process movement, impulse, and desire. It is the brain of action. It is the most dynamic, profound, powerful, transformative, and intelligent brain. It operates at a very, pro very profound speed. It is quicker than the other brains. And it is the matter, it is the energy, and it is the conduit for conscious awakening. By working with the sexual energy, which is an electric force, a cognitive force, we learn to awaken our full potential. So notice that each of the three brains has its material component. But also there is energy related to each of the three brains. However, we have to remember that energy is not consciousness. Energy is what empowers consciousness. Whether we are conditioned or whether we are liberated from that conditioning. Whether we are free of ego or we are enslaved to it. We always need energy in order to operate in an intellectual way, in an emotional way, in our movement, in our instincts, and especially with our sexual energy, our sexual behavior. Remember that if a car runs out of fuel, it dies, it stops. The same with the three brains. So we have to give it good fuel to balance these centers. Do not use too much energy within either of the three brains, especially the sexual energy. We must always conserve it so that it becomes the foundation by which we empower consciousness, as we've explained previously. So consciousness has many states, qualities, and degrees. And according to the 14 Dalai Lama, we must develop the conviction that consciousness has the capacity to expand to an infinite degree. So this is why we study meditation. Meditation teaches us these definitions and principles. So we can examine some common etymologies, or better said, scientific common definitions of consciousness in order to elaborate on the principles we are covering in this course. It is the state of being conscious, knowledge of one's existence, condition, sensations, mental operations, acts, etc. What does it mean to be conscious? People believe that thought, feeling, 
impulse demonstrates our state of cognizance, an awakened level of being. Yet this is very mistaken. How many times have we traveled on the road or by train thinking of other things, lost in a chain of mechanical, associative thinking, daydreaming, thinking of the past, planning for the future. And then we realize we missed our stop. We forgot to turn off the turnpike to reach our destination. There are many times we don't see or notice where we are. We don't even know or understand what our surroundings are, what we see in front of us. This can result in accidents and it's tremendously, tremendously dangerous. This causes problems. We don't know what is happening. We could be walking down the street, looking at our iPhone, or simply lost in reverie until we bump into someone or perhaps enter a bad neighborhood because we weren't paying attention. And this is our chronic state. We often don't understand or remember where we are at, what is going on around us. It is a profound state of sleep, of ignorance. Likewise, we often forget what we are thinking about if we're daydreaming. It becomes difficult later to recall what exactly preoccupied us in the moment. Likewise, there are many processes and cessations that occur throughout our body without the slightest intervention or awareness of our consciousness. This means that we are asleep. We're driving the car, but we are not aware of where we're at, that we're behind the wheel. This is, also, this is metaphorical, but also can be literal. There are people who drive their car without any awareness of what they are doing. This is why many accidents happen. But spiritually speaking, we commit many mistakes when we are not driving our three brains with intelligence, with intentionality. We simply believe that whatever thoughts, feelings, and impulses emerge, we ignore where those thoughts feelings and impulses emerge where they come from that they are separate from the soul from the consciousness from the essence we tend to react to life without wisdom this is evidenced by our suffering in a crisis we can respond or react mechanically without comprehension without ethics which always results in the exacerbation of our suffering. Consciousness is also the immediate knowledge or perception of the presence of any object, state, or sensation. So not only do we lack an understanding of our internal states, but our relationship to life, to external persons, to objects, to our surroundings. And lastly, consciousness is an alert cognitive state in which you are aware of yourself and your situation. 
So consciousness is beyond thought, feeling, sensation. However, that consciousness can utilize the thinking brain, the emotional brain, and the motor brain in order to act. This is only possible to understand when we observe what is going on in our interior. And the way that we do so is through the four powers of consciousness. So in order to understand what the consciousness is, we study four dynamics, qualities, or principles of the consciousness. And the terms that you see here are often confused by many people in different spiritual movements. A lot of people talk about awareness, about paying attention, about being mindful, and about visualizing the goal of one's desires. Awareness is simply a spatial perception. It is a vast, expansive state in which if we're seated in a chair looking out from our home, the window, we can see whatever surroundings exist with clarity. Is it a state of quality? If our spatial perception is broad and vast, we'll be able to register with our understanding what is around us. Of course, we have to remember that our senses relate to the consciousness. They're the vehicle by which consciousness can act. So when we talk about awareness, real awareness is not limited simply to our vision, our hearing, our sense of external perceptions. We can experience a state of awareness when the physical body sleeps in which we awaken from a dream, a dream state. We have left the physical body behind. This is known as astral projection, dream yoga, out-of-body experiences, lucid dreaming. We're no longer in the body physically, but as a soul, as an essence, we are in the internal planes, the fifth dimension. If we are practicing awareness throughout our daily life, we can see our surroundings within the astral dimension. We can see trees, buildings, cars, people with depth, with color, with sounds. There's a type of expansive quality relating to awareness, which, of course, is easy to see from a state of awakening within the internal dream world. But we begin that development in the physical world. We learn to be aware of our surroundings. If we're walking down the street, we are observing not only our internal psychological states, but also what is going on outside of us. This is a psychological sense that is very atrophied in people. Because like a muscle that is not exercised, it becomes weak. It's not able to channel a lot of energy. So our consciousness right now is very weak. This is evidence when, by observing our day, we try to remember the presence of our inner divinity, 
We become aware of our surroundings, but also the qualities of love, of awakening, of awareness, states of compassion, of serenity, of temperance. We have to be aware that we are in the body, that we are operating the car, that we are driving our car. But most of the time, we get lost in thought. We lose our attention. So this brings us to our next principle. Attention is different from awareness. Attention is a type of consciousness that is focused on one thing. Most of the time, our attention is invested in our thinking. We either preoccupy ourselves with memories from the past or plans for the future. This type of consciousness is the opposite of attention, where the mind wanders, thinking of other things, but not paying attention to our task, which is in front of us, within the body. Attention is a state of concentration. To focus on one thing without losing our understanding of the moment. Awareness is broad. Attention is focused. If you think of it in terms of light, awareness is diffused. It expands. It reaches outward. But attention is inward. We pay attention through self-observation to what internal states exist in the moment. We examine the three brains. What are we thinking? What are we feeling? What impulses are pushing us to act, to affect the people around us? Awareness is also essential in this relationship. We often talk about self-observation in these studies. This is paying attention to our internal states. But the challenge is also in relation to awareness. To really understand the ego, we have to be aware of our surroundings. So we're at work, we're in our daily job, we have to be aware of what's going on external of us. This is the event that we must study. And when we have an ordeal where someone gossips about us or criticizes us directly, Someone does a behavior that is hurtful of our pride. We have to be aware of what they're saying, what they're doing, where this person is, even what they look like, their dress, their race. What are the surroundings? Where is the place we are in, in this specific moment, during this event, during this crisis? And then we have to pay attention at the same time. We have to pay attention to what reactions emerge. Some people really struggle with this dynamic, this relationship of principles. We have to be aware and attentive. We must pay attention to our internal state in relation and in our awareness of the external event. Without both principles, our comprehension when we meditate will be incipient, will lack depth. Every ego responds to an external event. So, 
We have to study ourselves and the events in relation to us. As we are doing this diligently, practicing these principles, we are developing mindfulness. A lot of people talk about mindfulness in today's world in relation to meditation. But there is a lot of ambiguity and vagueness about what this term means. Mindfulness is simply the continuity of consciousness. So if you are paying attention to yourself at work, perhaps you have a moment of clarity in relation to a client where a conflict emerges. That's a single moment of perception that you are cognizant of. But you may find that later on, as you're trying to pay attention and be aware, you forget yourself. You start thinking of other things, daydreaming, being lost in thought. But then we snap ourselves back to the present moment. We become aware again, attentive again. Mindfulness is being in a state of continuity, in a state of flow, where this state of clarity and perception of recognizing the ego continues from moment to moment. If we're honest, most of us forget ourselves all the time and that we have to bring ourselves back here and now. Mindfulness is that continuity. The word for continuum is tantra. It is awakening. And of course, the ability to be mindful throughout one's entire day is predicated on the work of sexual energy. The consciousness is empowered with the work with energy, creative energy, which we do through exercises of mantra, breath work, pranayama, alchemy, meditation. In order to deepen our perception, we work with visualization. This is the capacity to perceive non-physical imagery. So if I were to tell you, imagine an elephant in front of you. You could see it. That's not physical imagery, but it's psychological. The capacity to visualize is really important for deepening self-observation, attention, awareness. To visualize is the capacity to see within the consciousness, inside. So after we've worked in observation and attention, fighting to be mindful throughout the day, gathering data about our defects, our egos we wish to eliminate. We later go home, we sit down in meditation, we visualize the events of the day. We reflect on what egos emerged. Visualization is powerful. It is transformative. But we cannot visualize well with clarity, with depth, if we're not working with self-observation and attention. And of course, we have many exercises to develop visualization, imagination exercises to strengthen that sense because it develops greater powers with use. And us, our, our ability to perceive images in the mind is weakened. And so that's something we need to strengthen through practice. In relation to mindfulness, we talk about three degrees of cognizance. These three 
steps that Samal Enver gives in his book Fundamentals of Gnostic Education is really compelling. These are questions we should ask ourselves all the time, especially when we sit home in our meditation space, our bedroom, wherever it may be, to reflect and retrospect our day. Retrospection meditation is when we, after having worked or gone throughout our daily occupation, working in self-observation, self-remembering, we visualize the events of the day. We reflect about how cognizant we actually were, not theorizing or believing our state, but simply reflecting and remembering the qualities of our being. First, time. How long did we remain cognizant? So if you're walking down the street, aware of your surroundings in your home city, your hometown, going to the store, how long did you remain in that state, aware of your surroundings, aware of the people, aware of your breath, your body, your circulation, your blood, the heat or the cold surrounding you, the snow, whatever it may be, how long did we remain in that state? There's a story given by Ospensky, I believe, who was teaching self-remembering and self-observation, where he was in a profound state of awareness, awareness, walking down the streets of a city, very awake, describing the minute details of his environment, until he arrived at a cigar shop where he became fascinated with some things that he wanted to buy. So he went in the store and became lost in his desires for this object, for a new pipe or tobacco, whatever he was searching for. When he came home, he suddenly remembered, I was awake. I just walked home from the cigar shop, but yet I can't remember where I went, what I was doing. But before that point, he knew all the details of his travel. So the question remains, how long did we remain cognizant when we were awake, when we were observing ourselves, remembering where we were at? But there's a second principle that's also important. How many times have we awakened our consciousness? So in the example of Ospensky, he remembered where he was until he got to the cigar shop. And then he fell asleep again, lost in memories. And then he got home and recalled what he needed to do. So how many times have we remembered to return to the present instant? Buddha Shakyamuni stated, if our meditation is strong, it means that we may have forgotten our object of focus and yet we brought our attention back again and again and again. That is a good meditation where you bring your attention back or don't forget what you're doing. The last principle is amplitude and penetration. What were we conscious of? So amplification or amplitude has to do with quality, 
expansion. Perhaps we saw the force of our home. Perhaps we were walking in a forest preserve, observing the trees, nature, our surroundings. Personally, I've been in the habit of going out to the suburbs to walk in the forests in order to practice this exercise of awareness, to see the quality of the trees, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the feeling of walking on dirt paths. How amplified is our consciousness? And how much have we penetrated into with our insight? How much do we see? How much do we understand? These three principles have serious implications for our work. But also we study four states of consciousness. In Hinduism, they refer to them as Shushupti, Sapna, Jagrat, and Turiya. This is profound sleep, dreaming sleep, waking consciousness, and spiritual illumination. Shushupti is typically interpreted to mean the sleep we experience when we physically go to bed. Our body is asleep, and there is simply no awareness of anything, no dreams, where we sleep eight hours, and we wake up, and we don't recall anything. This is the common definition and interpretation. Sapna is dreaming sleep. And the common interpretation is when we go to bed physically, we experience dreams. And upon awakening, jagrat, into daily life, we recall and remember that we experience some dreams of whatever quality, depth, or amplitude. And so people commonly think that jagrat, waking consciousness, has to do with being physically active. And of course, this is a mistake. As we've been explaining, profound sleep is a state of consciousness, not just of the physical body. There are people who exist in this world who are physically active, and yet they are profoundly asleep as a consciousness. In reality, they might be in the midst of a mob or a protest committing terrible crimes. Perhaps there's a riot and a person who is not prone to violent behavior becomes fascinated with the crowd, goes along with it, and is enmeshed in barbaric, instinctive behavior. They do things that they would never do in their regular daily life. And then afterward, reflect and feel remorse and shame. It means that they were profoundly asleep in a negative state. They were not aware of what they were doing at all. And this is really the source of many traumas, problems, conflicts. People also don't understand that they are dreaming 
even when physically awake. Dreaming sleep is a state of consciousness, not the body, not merely the body. What are dreams? When I'm thinking of my friend, my fiance, my family, my brother, my sister, whomever it may be, we're not aware of the instant in which we are at. We are dreaming. We are asleep. We're not paying attention. And so those moments in which we are aware of our surroundings and entering the state of psychological self-observation means we are in jagrat, waking consciousness. We are gathering new data about ourselves so that we can transform our conditioned states into spiritual states, which is the state of Turiya, illumination. States of Turiya relate to ways of being in God. The soul is immersed in divinity and experiences with omniscience the higher states of the cosmos. This is a quality of being that is free of egotism. There is no desire there. It is a state of godly intuition, understanding and knowing beyond material perceptions. It is a state of pure love, of divinity. These four states have also been known in Greek. These are Ikasia, Pistis, Dianoia, and Nous. We have an image here of Plato's allegory of the cave. And an inscription in Latin at the top from the Bible. I believe the, the verse states something along the lines of that the light came into the world to deliver humanity, but people love darkness over light, over divinity. So, in this image we see, and as related to in the allegory of the cave of Plato, it is a teaching about how the soul escapes the mind, the ego, negative states, in order to enter liberation. So there is a wall in which we find many people chained by their necks, their arms, and their legs, where they are in a crowded, uncomfortable cave in darkness. And sometimes by looking across from them as they're in their prison, they can see shadows cast upon the wall in front of them, in front of their faces. Primarily because behind them, behind this wall, there are people who are passing before a fire. There was a fire in the cave, and many people carried diverse clay pots, objects, and items on their heads and their hands. The light projecting onto these objects creates shadows on the wall and the cave before these prisoners. So all they see is either darkness or shadows. They think the shadows are reality, the appearances of things. And they have their theories and beliefs, their doctrines and their dogmas about what these shadows are. 
and yet they do not see the reality of their prison, their condition. But fortunately, a guru emerges who reaches behind the wall to take one of these prisoners, releasing them from their chains and bringing them before the fire. They realize, as they are blinded by the light, that before they were in darkness. They see for the first time. They see the luminosity of the fire in the cave and the many people who are passing objects to and fro, understanding for the first time that the source of those shadows were from those objects and the light projected and casting their shadows. But this is not the end of the moral of the myth. Plato describes to the mouth of Socrates how this prisoner is taken out by this guru, out through a long tunnel, traversing through a mountain. And of course this prisoner, who is only used to the dark, fights and resists the guru, who out of love is carrying him out of his ignorance to the outside world. Finally, it is nighttime, and the guru takes, the teacher takes, this soul, this person, and shows them the stars for the first time. And even the stars, their light dim, is difficult for the eyes of this person because they've always lived in the dark. Finally, at the end, the sun rises. And this person who is a prisoner realizes how chained and conditioned and imprisoned he was or how she was. This allegory, this myth, given in the Republic of Plato, is a direct representation of the four states of consciousness, which, of course, Plato used Greek terms. I provided you the Hindu version, the four states, and ikasya is the first. It is profound sleep. Interestingly, its, its term in Greek means imagination, from the Greek ikonom, images. So this might confuse some people. How is it that profound sleep, barbaric mind, animal behavior, profound instinctual sleep, mob mentality, violence, murder, unconsciousness? How is it that ikasya means imagination? Econon, images. It's because physically we can be seeing life, going through life, perceiving the images of our existence, and yet have no cognizance of them whatsoever. We are in a profound state of barbarity and sleep, like the members of this cave who live in the darkness and who think they know, but they don't. What is an econom? It is an image, and sometimes the Bible speaks about not making false images in order to worship. Many times, people think that idolatry, the worshiping of false images, has to do with thinking a statue is a god or worshiping false religions. The reality is that 
any ikonom, any image, is a condition of mind. Anger, resentment, pride, fear, vanity, lust, hatred, wrath, desire. All the egos are images that exist in the darkness of our mind. And yet we can't see them clearly because we don't separate from them through self-observation, through developing light perception. The dreaming state of consciousness is known as pistis, which means belief, faith, from pisteo, to trust, to have confidence, faithfulness, to be reliable, to assure. People fight and kill for their beliefs, for their religions, for their dogmas. Dreaming sleep are all the theories, religions, beliefs, ideals, institutions, and systems of thought in which people trust and have confidence and faith, which give them assurance. And yet those beliefs and ideas only exist as concepts in the mind. They're dreams. They're not based in reality or experience of divinity. Humanity lives between these two states, in the darkness of the cave or in belief, pistis. So in this image, when the prisoners see darkness or they see shadows on the wall, is a direct reference to these two states. Ikasia is darkness. And pistis is to see shadows on the wall. We see the shadows projected in life upon the screen of our attention, and we have many beliefs and theories about what they mean, about our senses, and yet we don't know the reality behind what we perceive. Dianoia is very distinct. Dianoia is imagination, thought, mind, perception. It's interesting that in these studies we refer to Dianoia as the state of awakened consciousness. It is jagrat. States of mindfulness, awareness, attention, self-observation, self-remembering. It's also referred to as imagination, perception, just like ikasya. Why is it that in a profound state of sleep we exist and experience imagination? Imagination is ikasya, but also dainoya means imagination as well. This is because our capacity to perceive images internally and physically can either be objective or subjective, positive or negative, liberated or conditioned. There are two ways to awaken, whether for good or for ill. The word daya means thoroughly from side to side, which intensifies noeo, to use the mind, noose. So dianoia is a revision of mind. It is the fire that the candidate for the light, the prisoner from darkness, sees and interprets and understands his situation, that he was a prisoner, asleep. This is our psychological and spiritual state. We see light from the fire, from the cave. We begin to understand that we are in prison. We begin to perceive the reality of things that the ego is a prison and that self-observation and self-remembrance is the light that leads us out of pain. 
He can only do that through dianoia, to move from side to side, to intensify noeo, to, how, to use the mind. This is the meaning of living intensely with ethics, rectitude, and love. And when the prisoner escapes from the cave to see the sunlight for the first time, he experiences noose, the highest state of perception. Noose means mind. It is intellect, intelligence, according to common definitions. But we shouldn't say intellect. We think it's a poor translation because the intellect is the mind. It is ego. Real news is spiritual mind, spiritual consciousness, free of any obscuration or desire, any defect. It is the sun and intelligence of divinity manifested within the perfect soul. These are the four states, the four qualities of mind. And it is only when we really step out of the cave of our mind that we see how much suffering we were in and that gives us the inspiration the joy and the will to help others it is the solar logos the christic energy the force of divinity that exists inside so the allegory of the cave is a beautiful myth teaching us profound psychological principles truths from sleeping consciousness, dreaming consciousness, to awakened consciousness, and then finally to the goal, spiritually illuminated consciousness, which is defined and mapped out within the Kabbalistic studies, the tree of life, which we've touched upon previously, but also we'll be exploring more together. The way that we awaken our consciousness is through self-observation, retrospection, meditation, which we can provide for you additional resources, such as through chicagonurses.org. We have a lecture called Retrospection Meditation, which we've given at the end of our Gnostic Meditation course, which explains the practical techniques of this teaching. Do you have any questions? I have, I have a couple of questions, actually three questions. Um, one of them is, is kind of tough. It's like thought. It's hard to put it into a question, but I'll try. So um, sure. the, the first is the, the mentioning of moving side to side in relation with dianoia in, in new as kind of a direct, does that, is there a correlation of the cross, the, 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 the sense of horizontal and vertical in dianoia and noose, do they meet as a cross? Is, is there a correlation there? Great, great question. Dianoia from the Greek, Dianous means to move side to side, which means how we move as a consciousness to examine 
the conditions of the intellect, of the heart, of the body. When we move side to side in a metaphorical sense, it means that we are examining a thing with scrutiny, with intelligence, with wisdom. This directly correlates with the symbol of the cross. We know from our studies that the cross is a sexual symbol. It is the horizontal uterus and the vertical phallus, which join together to create life, spiritually speaking. It is the power of the Platonic Logos, the divine force of Christ, which animates the soul and liberates the soul from suffering. So Nous is precisely the perfection of that cross, the perfection of that energy, primarily through eliminating desire, conditions of mind, egotistical states relating to ecosia and pistis, sleeping consciousness and dreaming consciousness. Dianoia is the work with transforming our beliefs about ourselves. So when we are identified with an idol, an image, an econom, a ego, a defect, we are petrified. We are in stone. We become immobile. How often have we, in this work, been trying to remember our divinity, observing our defects, and yet we become identified with a certain ego, perhaps of anger, and then we give in to its desires, its thoughts, and its acts. It means that we become hardened, conditioned. We feed that element, and we no longer examine it because we have invested it with our energy. So that means that we become like a stone, in the, like in the myth of Medusa and Perseus, how many heroes were turned to stone by looking into the eyes of the demon, which is our own ego. The face of a woman, the heads of snakes, a symbol of all the multiplicity of desires that exist inside. That is idolatry, to believe in an image, a false idol, an econom, to be an ecosia. So when you're working with Dianoia, you're moving side to side, just like a warrior does when they're fighting a monster in the Greek myths, like Perseus against the demon or the Gorgon, Medusa. So he used the shield of his armor, his self-reflection, his self-observation, his imagination, his visualization exercises in order to see that demon and not look directly into its vision, which means to identify with that defect. So that work of the hero, moving side to side, revising one's beliefs about oneself, is the work of the cross. Moving horizontally, but also vertically as well. Ascending to higher levels of being through that scrutiny and revision of beliefs. So Salman Vior often refers to Dianoia as a revision of beliefs, intellectual, spiritual culture, profound study of the scriptures, analysis, creative understanding, intelligence. It means that we're studying the doctrine and practicing it. We're seeing our ego for what it is and not being conditioned by it. That is like a cross, a form of movement. Because the cross, when it is in movement, becomes the swastika, a symbol of how 
the energies of a matrimony, but also the energies of one's creative work, such as through pranayama, helps to circulate energy so that it becomes like the perfected sun of Nus, the Platonic Logos. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you very, very much. Um, the, the, the second one I have is, um, this is a tougher one, so it's like I, I'm going to try to ask it through the notes that I took. So I'm trying to examine fear and free from fear. There's a sense of, you know, being going unconscious to conscious, like in trying to be conscious or remain conscious, there's this like, it's almost like energy put forth and then you can't help but notice that I've gone unconscious and then I'm conscious that I went unconscious and now I'm conscious again. Now I'm unconscious again. And there's this back and forth, a sense of freedom to enslavement back and forth. And, 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 and it sometimes feels like that. I think Samuel and yours has written about how it's like observing the mechanicity and, and so like a sense of to find some peace in observing the one who is unconscious, like you're going to go unconscious. So observe being unconscious. And, and in that there's this sort of like, am I a, a fear of God and keep his commandments versus the fear of myself, the fear of what I'm going to do if I go unconscious. And I guess the, the question in that is, is, like a fear of wrong action in a way if i observe my observe the one unconscious performing not right action is there a sense of learning from that almost by like because there's a scale of wrong action i mean like there's there's wrong action like i i ate too much versus wrong action you know, I, I, I hit somebody, right? Like, sure. and is, it, is there a usefulness in escaping from fear or, 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 or transforming fear um, by allowing a sense of uh, here's this unconscious person and, and, and then they're going to make mistakes and I can observe that and learn from that in order to make less mistakes. Because I think the fear comes in like anything wrong I do is good. Like I'm being watched all the time and anything wrong I do is going to have this result. But in a way, like you were saying, turns to stone. Like I feel paralyzed. Like I can't do anything without this like constant. Uh, I, so I guess that, 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 that's my question. <laughs> sure. So, uh, sure. So there's a lot there we can unpack. There's one thing of ego being a fearful desire wanting security, wanting comfort, wanting material goods in order to feel satisfied. Another thing is the fear of the consciousness. It's one thing to refer to fear as a defect, which it is. There's another quality of the consciousness called reverence or awe in different traditions. So some people have referred to it as fear of God. And it's more accurate to say reverence and respect remorse and awe of divinity and the commandments we've been given to work effectively on our own faults. If we never had that reverence or awe to do what's right, we would never step back from our mistakes. We would always continue to do the same thing because we no longer have remorse. A being that doesn't have that conscience or judgment, that inner self-reflection, is divorced from divinity. They are an empty house, so to speak. 
the body's there, but the soul's already devolving in the infernal worlds. Instead, what you have is, an, is a, a demon, an ego occupying a body that will eventually go to the grave. So one thing is to feel that reverence and respect for the commandments of our inner God, which is represented by all the ethical conduct of the scriptures, not morality or beliefs, pistis, ideologies, morality and theories that are contemporaneous to a particular culture, but the qualities of ethics, conscious ways of behaving, which are superior. States of mind and consciousness relating to dianoia. Knowing how to work around our own conditions of mind to help humanity, to work for others, to benefit others. So we need that type of sentiment, the respect and the longing and also the remorse and feeling that we may commit a mistake. If that ever existed in us, we would always remain fallen. There would be no hope. Now, it's better if we learn transformation, self-observation, self-remembering in the moment. So it's better if we have foresight rather than hindsight. We are in the moment and we know we're about to act with anger and we restrain the mind. And so we transform the situation. That's a form of foresight and understanding which is advanced. It's better. But not all the time are we going to be victorious. We may give in to that ego and then feel remorse for it. We go home and meditate, reflect on that ego we saw and that we fed, that we gave into. So that's hindsight. The Greeks referred to two deities, I believe they were brothers, is Prometheus and Epimetheus. Prometheus mm -hmm. means to see ahead, to foresee, to prophesize. And then Epimetheus means to see from behind. So they relate to each other because they're states of consciousness. In one case, Prometheus is the one who has the vision to not act on mistakes, to, know, to do what is right in the moment. Epimetheus is the consciousness that feels remorse for having committed an error and then seeks to work backward from it. So either way, we're working. But it's better if we restrain the mind in the instant and don't feed into those desires, because it'll be more difficult to work on that with more depth later. I hope that answers your question. Yes, yes, it gives some good thoughts. Um, it, it basically, I mean, it's like you have to, it sounds like what you're saying is that you, Epimetheus and Prometheus are in there, and they must both be worked with. If, if How can you really get from Prometheus, received from Prometheus, if you're afraid of your own Epimetheus, then, then the fear is, is you're, there's Epimethean qualities in the fear itself. Yeah, well, I'm, to be clear, Epimetheus is, you know, a type of remorse and conscience that bites at us when we commit a mistake. And Prometheus is one, in the moment, we don't make the error Outwardly, we may have an ego that emerges that we're observing, and yet we have the wisdom not to act on that fault, so that we have foresight to see that to act on this behavior is to commit a mistake and to create suffering, to complicate the situation. So both are good, but obviously Prometheus has 
greater wisdom because one's thinking ahead rather than behind. But those are two qualities that we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then my final, my final question, and this should be, I think, a quicker one. Um, could you say, speak on the motor instinctual sexual brain as a single brain? I often look at them as these five centers and uh, is there something about examining that brain as one? Because I, in a way, I see five different places, and I'm referring to that. But when I look at the, the, the spinal column as the motor instinctual sexual brain, is there a quality of that, those three centers that is in one, to examine as one? Or should it be observed as three centers just like, like to the other two? Good question. Brain. So the intellectual brain has its physical correspondence in our intellect, our cerebral spinal nervous system. The emotional brain is the heart with all of its nerves, or the grand sympathetic nervous system. The third brain is the brain of action. It synthesizes movement, instinct, and sex. It's not located in one specific area, but is distributed throughout the body. Primarily because it is the synthesis of who we are. So this third brain is an alchemical machine. When you think of alchemy, you're refining different qualities and elements to get at a synthesis, a unique principle. The third brain, the brain of action, is the spine as well. It's the top of the spine, which is where we have movement. It's the base of the spine where we have instinct. And it's the sexual organs where we have our creative energy. Those three work together in unison. They synthesize and harmonize and help each other. They're really deeply enmeshed in each other, primarily because instinct, movement, and sexuality are very quick in terms of their operational speeds. So we've spoken previously about how the different brains have different modes or ways of behaving, of processing information and action. The intellectual brain is slowest. The emotional brain is quicker than the intellect. And, of course, the sexual center is as really the fastest of the human machine. But we see that movement and instinct are as quick as the heart. They're quick, and they relate to the spine because they support our material existence. They allow us to act and to be in life. So pretty much even our thoughts and our feelings could not exist if it were not for our third brain, the motor instinctive sexual brain, because it is the brain of action. It's what expresses and synthesizes the rest. It allows action to exist in this physical world. So even if you had just a heart and an intellect, it would be impossible to provide that or express that in life if it weren't for the ability to move our instincts and our sexuality. So those three are the highly or the are the highest synthetic principles we carry within movement, instinct, sex. And I think the important thing to remember is that again, we would not exist without this principle. If you studied Hebrew, especially the symbolism of the 
Kabbalistic alphabet, which we have available on chicagonosis.org, but also gnosticteachings.org. There's a Hebrew letter that deeply relates to this principle. It's the third letter of Hebrew, which is compelling. It is Gimel. It is like a straight line with a front dot and a dot behind it. So you see basically three points. A reference to the motor instinctive sexual brain. Because the Hebrew letters represent principles and forces in us and also our consciousness and our body. And the third letter of Hebrew relates to the three brains, but also to the motor instinctive sexual brain. Because as the Hebrew letter Gimel teaches us, it is the brain that allows God to exist in us. It is the cerebral, better said, it is the parasympathetic nervous system. And God in Hebrew is spelled Gimel Dalet, which has a lot of profound meanings too, which you can study on our website, the Eternal Tarot of the Alchemy and Kabbalah, but also GnosticTeachings.org. I hope that answers your question. Yes, I did. I think I think there's you. It sounds like what you're saying is that in in relating the the sex to the emotional brain and to the intellect and trying to perform synthesis that that the sex is directly quicker very quickly influencing the instinct and the motor in a level that's just very very fast connected because of the, 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 the they're all one yes and so you can't take out the if you try to take them away from each other you can fall into error as as if they're as if they're three separate brains they're not I guess that's kind of a mystery. Yes. Oh, a brain, it's a, a mechanism for action and both instinct as well as sex and, and movement are deeply related. Um, I, I just need some clarification. Sure. It was uh, in the middle of the lecture when you were talking about attention and awareness. And yes. you said, of course, we need to be continually aware. But something about, you know, if we're really good at it, we could see right here, whatever's in the astro. Did I hear you wrong? Or I, I think I might have missed something. Sure. The awakening that we experience physically with our perception correlates with the amount of consciousness we awake in the dream state. So if we're really being effective with our awareness in daily life and also our attention being a understanding and comprehending of our egos that we see in action, that type of perception is going to move over into the astral plane. So if we're mindful, maintaining a continuity of perception, of self-observation from moment to moment, mm -hmm. developing our awareness, those things compound. They synthesize and empower each other. Because we have to remember that the consciousness is really a vast spectrum of many principles. The ability to pay attention to one thing, such as listening to a lecture or observing oneself, is a form of attention, concentration. But awareness is when we are expanding our perception outward. And so we need both. And when you work with both, observing what's external of us and also introspecting inside, we 
basically give our consciousness a strong workout. So a lot of people who might be doing weight training, going to the gym, they're not going to exercise one muscle the whole time. They do a variety of different things so that their body can be well-rounded and sculpted. So this is well-known exercise or the fitness world. Likewise, with the consciousness, we develop our awareness and we develop our attention, but also the mindfulness and continuity of all in order to awaken in the internal dream world. So one without the other is useless. So we need all four principles. So we invite you during this time to continue studying and listening to the lectures on GnosticTeachings.org, but also ChicagoGnosis.org. Uh, given that a lot of people now, due to the coronavirus, are staying indoors. So there are no more questions. We'll, we thank you for attending. And we invite you to continue listening to other lectures in the near future. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.